0: I'd like to turn your attention this morning to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is an Old Testament book located right near the end of actually the Old Testament, about three or four books from the end of it. Zechariah is considered a portion or a part of the minor prophets. We do not say minor Because what they wrote is uh, immaterial. We'll say minor because what they wrote was just simply smaller in content than uh, books like Isaiah and books like uh, Ezekiel and and things of that nature. Isaiah wrote, you know, over uh, 60 chapters in his book, Uh, Ezekiel was over 30 in his, but uh, Zechariah here only contains about 14 yet we always want to contrast or impress upon people's minds that it is not the uh, content uh, necessarily as much as it is the quality of what was written. I think we saw that even from our uh, little short study on the book of Joel, which is just there a few chapters, but how profound uh, the teaching was from that book. Uh, Zechariah is an absolutely wonderful book. Um We'll we'll start by telling you that the name Zechariah means God has remembered, or God remembers. Um, In in chapter 1, we are introduced to a little bit of Zechariah's family tree here. Uh, And shortly after that introduction, we are very quickly given eight different visions in the night in the first six chapters uh, of this book. Uh, Zechariah can be be easily divided into uh, two different portions. The first uh, eight chapters deal with uh, present things occurring in uh, Jerusalem and in Israel at that time. But then when you get to chapter nine through the uh, rest of the book, the remainder of it, uh, Zechariah very quickly jumps to future prophetic things, specifically uh, intermingling together the first and second comings of Christ all at one time. And when you start reading this, you kind of understand why the Jews had a hard time seeing Christ the first time. He didn't come the way they thought He was going to come. He didn't do what they thought he was going to do. As a matter of fact, we know this is told to us in Luke 24 when the disciples were walking from the tomb on resurrection morning to uh, the little town called Emas, that Jesus joins with them and he says, you know, why are you sad as you walk and talk amongst each other? And they says, well, are you not a stranger? Are you a stranger in these parts? Have you not known what has happened? And they begin to describe unto him what happened to Jesus. He's crucified. He's, he's been laid in a tomb and and we thought that it was He that was going to redeem Israel. They completely missed His entire purpose in being here. When you read this book and then you start listening to folk out here in the world around you, you can't help but wonder if some people today still have the same mindset that the Jews had the first time that Christ came. Because you start hearing a bunch of people talk about the millennium and the thousand years and what's all going to happen when and if, and when that comes. And you have to realize, or I, I, think, I think I have to realize that they kind of missed something. Human beings spend too much time trying to figure out how God's going to make this earth better. Ultimately, I don't care what He does with this pile of rocks. The Bible says that one day He's going to fold all this up as a vesture. Heaven itself is what we ought to be looking at. And and just put yourself in in those first century uh, Jews. Put yourself in their shoes. They're sitting here thinking that Christ has come or the Messiah will come and He'll restore the kingdom to them. And that's not what they see. They don't see Him defeating the Romans at that time. They actually see the Romans defeating Him. But three days later, He's out walking the streets of Jerusalem. Would that not cause you to pause for just a minute and say, what are you doing here? They crucified you. They laid you in a grave. What are you doing here? He could just very simply say, I did what I came to do. For think about this, if He is to deliver the Jews from the Romans at that time, He's going to have to deliver them again from the hand of the Nazis? He's going to have to deliver them again from the hand of any other oppressive regimes? Kingdoms come and kingdoms fall, do they not? You may think one kingdom is defeated and yet there stands somebody else in line ready to take over where that dictator fell. there's one enemy. There's one enemy that mankind has continually strived to defeat. But he never will. The enemy of death. Jesus did something far greater than deliver Israel from the hand of the Romans. He delivered every single one of His people from sin, death, hell, and the grave. When you read this book of Zechariah, you read it from the standpoint of victory in Jesus. It is one of the most assuring and comforting books in all the Old Testament. It is said that people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, when they uh, were stricken with depression, and discouragement in their day would often turn to this book and read this book as a source of hope. The imagery that's laid out within this book ties in a little bit with Daniel. But a lot of it ties in with another book we know in the New Testament called the book of Revelation. God did not give us the book of Revelation and the doctrine of of end times, that we would be fearful and afraid. God gave us these books to encourage us. As a matter of fact, there's a question that is asked of the Lord in chapter one of Zechariah, and the question in in verse twelve is that the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years? And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. The words that are contained in this book are good and comfort to God's people. How how you're supposed to read it. We'll get a little bit more into uh, some of the things in chapter 1 uh, a little bit later. It's a fascinating book. It's a, it's a book that kind of out, outlines a lot of transition in Israel's history. Um, but when you stop and think about uh, the prophecy that's not only contained in Zechariah, but... Uh, in other portions of Scripture, one of the reasons that, well, it's very difficult to imagine future prophecy. It's very difficult to imagine and understand distant future. You and I can explain or understand near future things within, say, the next few weeks or the next few months because it's it's simply just... Um, present friends kind of working themselves out. But how would you describe today's world to somebody that lived a thousand years ago? I mean, how would you describe television to somebody that lived a thousand years ago? How baffling is it that everything we had, say, even in the 1980s, we had TV and we had radios and we had telephones, and we had cameras, and we had all, all these multitude of devices now fit in your pocket. Your telephone, your television, your telewoman, I'm telegraphed. Uh, it's all in your pocket now. So some folks in the 80s might have a concept of this, but you try and explain to someone a thousand years ago simple little things that we have. How would you do that? The best way to do that is to try and come up with some pictures and then explain the pictures to people. That's what God does quite frequently with prophecy in the Bible. He, he gives you a picture of something. It, it's kind of a weird picture sometimes,
1: but nonetheless it's
0: a picture of something and then He attempts to describe or explain the picture to you. Sometimes they're angels and sometimes they're, uh, horns of animals as in chapter one and, uh, you get flying scroll in, in the book of Zechariah and you find a, uh, a woman in a box or a woman in a basket, which often when I, when I read this, this, uh, this vision of the woman in the ephah, it's, uh, chapter five and beginning with verse, verse five, this, Angel talked with him uh, and showed him verse six an ephah that goeth forth. It's kind of a kind of a pottery bucket, and in this pottery bucket there's a woman who is described as wickedness, and she will be taken from that place and uh, delivered down into Babylon. And I often wondered if going to hell in a handbasket kind of came from this. Because you've got this wickedness in a bucket that's going to be sent away somewhere else, which even in that, that's a, that's a a great encouragement to God's people that one of these days God's going to put wickedness where it belongs, away from us. At any rate, kind of ahead of myself a little bit. Zechariah was, uh, written sort of in conjunction with uh, another prophet called Haggai. Haggai is one book prior to Zechariah. So do me a favor. Uh, look, uh, fold your page over here and look at Zechariah chapter one, verse one, and Haggai chapter one, verse one. Haggai chapter one, verse one. Everybody found it? One. Shouldn't have been that hard. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet. So this was written the sixth month of the second year of Darius the king, right? Second year of Darius the king, the sixth month. Notice what Zechariah has to say. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So they're writing together, they're companions in the ministry, and they're only written about two, two months apart. Uh, Haggai's uh, prophecy is very short. Ze- uh, Zechariah kind of picks up where he leaves off, but yet he continues on for a number of years. They both have to deal sort of with the same thing. They, they're they both prophets after the exile of Israel in Babylon. I read to you in verse 12 of chapter 1, where it says you've had indignation with these people, lo, these threescore and ten years. It's born 10 to 70 years. There's uh, another reference to uh, 70 years a little later uh, in the book. It's chapter 7 and verse 5 that there's another reference to this captivity. And, And what these prophets are dealing with is you have Israel that was taken away into Babylon for 70 years. You know, when Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem, he just ransacked the city, completely destroyed it. Now they've come back. Uh, Nehemiah was one who prophesied to them also at some point to, to help them rebuild the walls around the city. But Zechariah and Haggai are uh, encouraging the people to rebuild the temple, the house of God. He is there to sort of reignite their burden for the house of God and metaphorically reignite their burden for the house of God and physically reignite the fire of worship. Rebuild the temple, rebuild the altars, set the fire, go back to worship. That's that's Zechariah's purpose in all this. In Zechariah chapter one, verse one, we are told that uh, the Lord Spoken to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet. We said earlier that uh, the pictures mean something. You have Iddo, the grandfather, Berechiah, his son, Zechariah, the grandson. The name Iddo. You look it up, and you find all everything I'm fixing to tell you. you find in your own Strong's concordance if you have one. Uh, the, the, the name Ito comes from a multitude of words, but it sent, essentially means a uh, timely appointment. A timely appointment, and it also has a reference in there to uh, bringing an ornament upon. That there will be uh, an appointed time when God will deck. Or ornament his people. Uh, the name Baruchiah means blessing of God, and we said earlier the name Zechariah means remembered of God. It's amazing that I, I've, I've read a few people and they haven't quite put this together. Maybe I'm making something out of this that I'm not supposed to. Who knows? If ido means appointed time, Erechia means God will bless, Zechariah means God will remember, it ought to bring us great hope that in God's appointed time, He will remember us and He will bless us. In God's appointed time, He will remember us he will bless us. Do we not get frustrated with God because He doesn't work on our timetable? You know, if He just listened to me, He'd under... No. We do, though. We are impatient people. But you know what? God put something in us that is not in Him. God put something in human beings that is not in Him. He put within us the constraint of time. God is not in a hurry because God never runs out of time. God is not in a hurry because God is always where He needs to be when He needs to be there. God was not in a hurry to get to the tomb of Lazarus or get to the, the sick bed of Lazarus in, in John 11 when they came to Him and said, the one whom Thou lovest is sick. And it said He abode there two more days. If someone said to you, there's someone in your life, someone in your family that is sick, would you not drop things and go to that person not knowing how much more time they have? We are creatures of time. We are constrained by time. We have to do things uh, for a reason uh, and for a purpose, and we have to sometimes do them quickly, or time for us will run out. But with God, there is no time with God. God's never early. He's never late. So you think Gandalf is the only one who arrives precisely when he wants to? No. Where do you think Tolkien got that from? It's a concept of God. God arrives precisely when He intends to. He arrived when the disciples were struggling in rowing in the New Testament. And he'll arrive when you are struggling in your life. He comes to Israel with this reminder that at an appointed time, God will remember, God will bless, and also, essentially, these three names together also mean worship and praise one of the greatest things that God can do is bless us to worship and praise Him. A lot of people want to be blessed with things in life. Friends, things come and things go. As a matter of fact, when you read through Zechariah, you'll come over here to... uh, Let me see. Where have I marked this? It's in, uh, chapter four. Zechariah chapter four, verse ten. He asked the question, for who hath despised the day of small things? It is, it is true that sometimes we wish our congregations would, were larger than they are. And I think currently we do live in a society that despises small things. I hear a lot of the mega churches around us championing this grow, grow, grow. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, we've got one in our neighborhood. They had a project here a few years ago. A thousand to a thousand was their slogan. We want to help a thousand churches reach a thousand members in a period of time. So just grow, 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 grow. Get bigger, 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 bigger. But then there's a problem with that. As soon as you get there amongst this multi-thousand people, you know what the first thing they tell you to do is? You need to join a small group. Wait a minute. I, I thought we needed to be big, 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 big. You want to look at some of those people and say, if you need to join a small group, then go back to the small group you abandoned for this monstrosity and pray for them. Very few people have the courage to do that. Very few people have the courage to stay where they are in a small group and pray for that group that it be blessed by God. No, they want ready-made right now. They want to get married and have everything that their parents had after 40 years. And they want it right now. This is why our nation is drowning in credit card debt. It's drowning because of the inflation that we are experiencing now, but it's really drowning because people want things. And they don't understand that things come and go. He said here, who has despised the day of small things? Uh, I made a little note here in my in my book. If you can turn back to Ezra chapter three, keeping in mind what's occurring in Zechariah, turn back to Ezra chapter three, and I'd like you to notice. Um, well, you really you can start reading. Verse 10 of Ezra 3 says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with symbols, so forth and so on, and they sang. Uh, Notice the last portion of verse 11. It says, All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Okay, so we're starting to rebuild this temple, okay? People see this. Some of them shout for joy. You notice verse 12? What's the first word of verse 12? But. What, doesn't that always beset revival? That always, it always pushes it aside every time. But. That's what happened in, when Lord told them to go and invade, go get Canaan's land. And they said it's a good land, right? But walled cities to the sky, giants in the land were grasshoppers in their sight. But many of the priests, the Levites and the chief fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy. You've got two different generations here coming together in the church. It's never happened, has it? You have two different mindsets Coming together and, and having to work together in the church. I wish I had a joker smile. I just pull it right out. You've got two different generations here. Those before Babylon and those that were born in Babylon now coming out having never seen the temple. Those who've never seen it and never had it are rejoicing in what they have. Those who had it and lost it are now crying. Because the new foundation of the new temple is smaller than the foundation of the older temple. It's not as big. It's not as grand. It goes on to tell you there in verse 13 that the noise of the shouting, of weeping and crying, and the noise of joy, they started, started mixed together and you couldn't tell the two Part. Here's what we need to understand about this. The older generation is, is, is weeping because it's not as big as it used to be. But they're missing something. This new house that's going to be built is going to have something in it far greater than anything around it. It will have the presence of God. And there is something that we need more than anything in our churches. More than numbers. More than small children. More than old people. More than books with songs in it and song notes in it. More than preachers who preach with notes or without notes. All that garbage pushed aside. What we need more than any of that all is the presence of the Spirit of God. If the presence of the Spirit of God is there, none of that other stuff matters. Because things come and things go. Things can be replaced. The Spirit of God cannot be replaced. It cannot be mimicked. And it cannot be copied. It has to be from Him, in truth, for real. When Zechariah begins... uh, Speaking, the very first thing that he lays out to them in chapter 1 is a message from the Lord of a message of repentance. I've also, I got to, I got to throw this in here too. I keep, I keep missing this, but, um, there's something that's going to happen through the book of Zechariah, and that is that, uh, priests are going to come in and they're going to repent place the prophets. There's also something else that's going to happen in chapter 6 with Joshua the high priest uh, that they're going to crown him a king. They've never had this before. The closest they've ever seen is a man named Melchizedek. Way back in the book of Genesis who dealt with Abraham, but he was on the scene just for a moment and passed off. Here's a brief history of the existence of of Israel for what it's had. When you begin with Abraham, Satan, there's about a 2,000 year period of history from the time of Abraham to the time of the coming of Christ. And here's about what you have. For the first 500 years, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have these patriarchs that are leading the way. Well, all that kind of goes away and then you have a man named Moses in the book of Exodus. And so for the next 500 or so years from Moses to Samuel, you really have prophets who are the main leadership in Israel. You do have the heads of the families, the tribes of Israel, but they all answer to Moses. Moses is a prophet. And a prophet is someone who speaks from God to the people. Well, what happens with, uh, with Samuel? Remember what, the, remember what Israel told Samuel? They were old, well stricken in age. Thy children walk not in thy statutes. Sort of the same thing that happened to Eli. Eli was a, was a high priest and his sons were sons of Belial. Terrible people. And because of the failing of the leadership, it causes the the nation to do foolish things. They said to Samuel, give us a king like all the other nations. And so then you have Saul and David and Solomon. But then you have Jeroboam. And after that, the kingdom just absolutely disintegrates. It divides into two. And the ten northern tribes... All have, they have 19 kings that rule the 10 northern tribes, and all 19 of them are failures. Every one of them. Not a good king among them. Southern tribe, eh, here's one, there's one, good here, bad there, good here, bad there. Kind of like what we have in America. You know, we put one guy in there, and half the nation gets fed up with him, and we put somebody else in there of another group, and then the other half gets tired of him, and we put some... It's all a big failure, right? And then you come to this time. So you had from about 2,000 to 1,500, you had the patriarchs or the fathers. From 1,500 to 1,000, then you had uh, Moses and Samuel, these prophets who spoke from God. Then from 1,000 to 500, you had the kings or the rulers over Israel. And then from this point on, 500 to 0, You've got high priests, and you've got no real word from the Lord. There's about a 400-year period of silence uh, between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew where they're not hearing from God. But you do have these high priests, and the purpose for the high priest is a high priest goes into the holy of holy places, and he speaks to God. So you have a person speaking to God in the position of a priest and you have a person speaking from God in the position of a prophet. When those two work together, that's great. When you're speaking to God and God is not talking back, that's terrible. When God is speaking and the people are not listening, that's also terrible. God gives them... An example of every kind of leadership. The fathers, the prophets, the kings, and the priests. And every one of them are a failure. So what Israel essentially needs is one person who takes all four of these positions, puts them together in one office, and that's what you get in the person of Christ. He's every bit of that. This is why when, when people when people fall out in churches or people fall out in families or people fall out wherever they're at. Because I'm never going back there again. Why? They made me mad. They made me angry. They did this. They did that. Well, you were looking at the wrong person then. If something that somebody else can do can keep you from serving the Lord, you weren't looking at the Lord to start with. You're looking at the wrong thing. Israel spent their life looking the wrong thing. And so the Lord tells them when when He comes back on the scene now, when He comes back into the city, they come back from from their captivity, the Lord comes to them. And the first thing that He says unto them in verse 3, Therefore, say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Uh, This is not the God of glory speaking to the Amorites and the Hittites and the heathen of the lands. This is God speaking to His people. This is not an invitation of salvation. This is an instruction of repentance to His people. He says, turn to me, and I'll turn to you. Notice what he says here, verse 4. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. He says to, to this current generation and to the children of this generation, don't be like your fathers. I, I want my children to walk in truth. I don't want my children to be like me. You don't need to look at me. You need to look at the Lord. Because I will disappoint you. I will fail you. I promise you that. The Lord says, be not as thy father was. So, you coming before the Lord and say, well, you know, our family just does it this way. Doesn't fly with him. You know, hadn't that, hadn't that been a terrible thing amongst the old Baptists? Well, that's just the way we do it around here. No sense in asking us to change. That's the way we've done it like that for 50 years. Well, friends, if you've done it wrong for 50 years, no better time to change than now, right? Because the issue is not how have we done it. The issue is how does the Lord want it done? Be not as your fathers. Because then He goes on to say, verse 5, look at this. He says, for you fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Where is everybody? They're all dead and gone. Many of them are dead and gone. But who's still there? Who are they still dealing with? When, when Herod cut off John the Baptist's head, because John the Baptist's message to him was it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. The message didn't didn't really scare Herod as much as it picked off Herod's girlfriend. And she said, I want his head severed. Herod gave her what she wanted. Cut off John the Baptist's head. Uh, Did that stop the truth from being true? Folks, you can run all around America and cancel people who disagree with you. Cancel their TV shows. Cancel their Facebook pages. Cancel their Instagram. You can cancel everybody around that disagrees with you, but you cannot cancel God. You can take the truth, go out in the backyard, bury it in the ground, and it will open the door for you when you come back to the house to walk in. And this is what the Lord is reminding Israel of here. Don't be like other people. Don't turn away from the message that's being told to you. Because the message is not really coming from the preacher. The preacher is simply reading to you the message that God has written to you in His Holy Word. He says in verse six, but my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings. So hath he dealt with us. You kind of get the idea, though, that they, they did kind of hearken to what was being said because they got right on. And they started building the temple. So uh, let's kind of move a little bit further uh, into this first chapter. Um because he, Zechariah is given a couple of visions here. He's given visions of uh, a man on a red horse with a bunch of other horses around him, uh, around some myrtle trees. And then the second vision he is given in chapter 1 is a picture of four horns and four carpenters. You're thinking, wow, boy, this is just clear as mud, right? The intent is not to explain every little detail in this. The intent to first to show you that there are things happening in this world that you cannot see. Uh, The first vision that starts in verse 8 is that he beheld a man riding upon a red horse. And behind him were there red horses, speckled in white. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show you what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth. And behold, all the earth sit is still and is at rest. Wow, what do we got here? I'd like you to notice that the term angel keeps being thrown around a lot here. The man under the myrtle tree is an angel. The man that talks with Zechariah is an angel. The people, the, the things, people, whatever, sitting on the horses behind the man and the, are angels sent from the Lord. Hey, guess what these are? They're angels. This is not anything, I don't think there's any super secret mystery to this. They're angels of God. Sent from God to patrol the earth. What God is doing is allowing Zechariah to just pull back the curtain and see that there's something more real and something more lasting than just this earth. This earth will be done away with one day. This earth will go away. God and heaven's pure world will be forever. And God is paying attention to this world whether you realize it or not. And did you notice it was an angel that asked that question that we read earlier in verse 12, how long would Thou have mercy on Jerusalem? Uh, Jerusalem is lying waste. Lord, how long are You going to let this continue? And the Lord just simply speaks good and comfortable words to the angel. The same words that He might be speaking to you right now when you were asking How long, O Lord, how long am I going to have to deal with this? How long, O Lord, does it seem like you're not listening? How long, O Lord, does it seem like you're not paying attention? And the Word is, notice verse 14, The angel that communed with me uh, saith unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. God cares. You know, if we had a title to put on this entire book, it could be God the Almighty and friend of Sinners," Because God in His mightiness is going to destroy all the wickedness that opposes Jerusalem. And He's going to do it because He loves His people. Verse 15 is particularly interesting to me. Uh, For it says, I was... Very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. Um, so he's talking about the heathen here. He's not talking about his people. This is not an allegory or an illustration to reference Gentiles being a part of his family as in maybe the Psalms or something. These are actually people who are not the people of God. Babylon... Is the heathens. Babylon ransacked Jerusalem. Babylon carried Israel away. And in ransacking Jerusalem and in ransacking the temple, Nebuchadnezzar scoops up some of the gold and cups and some of the golden platters and he hauls it away and puts it in the storeroom. Remember this? And then what happens uh, to Babylon... Well, it's, it's uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belteshazzar. He's having a drunken feast there in Daniel... Six, seven. And in his drunken feast, he calls for all the gold that his father brought back from the temple. And let's go out and have a party. And God says, I'm done with you. And there's that writing on the wall to Belteshazzar. And that night, Babylon falls. Belteshazzar is slain. The patience of God will come to an end with this wicked world. And he says, you know, the heathen, I sent them to discipline Israel. I sent them to punish Israel. Yes. But I was just a little displeased. Read this. He said, and I was but a little displeased and they helped forward the affliction. They went beyond what I had permitted them to do. They went beyond what I suffered them to do. This wicked world eventually one day will stand before God. Not because God is an unjust God and doesn't elect everybody. But because God is angry with the race as a whole and the wicked just help push that along a little further. Now, the second vision that He's given um, is verse 18. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said the angel that talked with me, what be these? And he answered, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Uh, this ties in very, very, very much with the book of Daniel. Uh, after about chapter 7 or 8 with Daniel, you get into chapter 9, and boy, you get these... Crazy dreams and visions in Daniel. And one of them is a bunch of horns and goats and heat goats and rams fighting one another and butting heads with each other. Horns are emblematic of world powers. There's four horns that are laid out here, right? We read that, four horns? I can just give you a quick illustration of this. I cannot tell you that this is exactly this, but I can give you a quick illustration of this that when... uh, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed a great dream of that golden statue that he had that night. A head of gold and arms of silver, a belly of brass and legs and and feet of iron mingled with miry clay. It's 2,500 years of Gentile history. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, the head of gold. Babylon falls, as we talked about, to the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians fall to a man you've heard of, Alexander the Great. And then Alexander the Great, he eventually dies. His kingdom is divided. And then Rome comes along. This kingdom of iron mixed with miry clay. It's unstable at the base. You notice this. It's going to crumble because it's upside down. It's built backwards. It devalues as it goes down. And everybody who knows anything is the most valuable part of building is what you build on. That's why Jesus said you build upon a rock, not the sand. So this is Gentile history. So it's upside down and backwards. And it devalues as it goes down and it's going to crumble. But in that you have four horns. You have the kingdom of Babylon. The Medes and the Persians that reign together. Alexander the Great and the Romans. Four horns, right? But then what's going to happen to these four horns? He says, here come uh, verse 21. Uh, Back up, verse 20. And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Then said I, what come these to do? And He spake, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man doth lift up his head, but these are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. So, these four carpenters, what, what is their purpose here? He says these four carpenters are going to come along and they're going to tear down these horns. They're going to fray these horns. There's a lot of them. Agricultural and farming illustrations given throughout the Bible. And here's one of them. If you've ever ever worked around cattle, especially them longhorn steers, you've got to be careful. Real careful. Uh, As a matter of fact, a lot of people go to such a point to cut their horns off, dab a little bit of acid or some little chemical in them so they don't grow anymore because they don't want that animal to harm them or hurt them as they're dealing with them. And look, these four carpenters come. Carpenters? are going to throw down these kingdoms? I can think of four men, or four men who were considered not that important to the world. And they wrote four books. Anybody get any pictures with this? I remember a certain number of men who came to a city and they said they would have turned the world upside down and come hither also. The preaching of the Gospel will come and it will tear down nation after nation after nation. In the fact that we will be reminded that the uh, living by the senses, living sensually, is going to be a disaster. Interesting so much how people are turned on their heads again nowadays, thinking they're going to lose the right to kill their unborn children. I mean, don't people just show you how crazy they are? Don't they just show you how, how their priorities are out of whack? But what God is showing Zechariah and what Zechariah is showing to the nation of Israel is what He's showing to us. The kingdoms will come and kingdoms will fall. But God stands and rules over them all. And I didn't mean for that to rhyme. Where are we headed? You read through this book and all of a sudden you get into chapter 9 and chapter 10. There's a phrase that's found Once in a while, through the first few chapters of this book, and its phrase is, in that day. In one day. But when you get to chapter 12 and chapter 14, about an accumulated 14 times in those two verses, you're going to read about something that happens in one day or in that day. Zechariah was looking forward to the first coming of Christ and something's going to happen in one day. You remember that? He will pay for the sins of all his people in one day. We're kind of stuck in the middle of this, though. You say, how do we fit into this? Very easily. You ever noticed in, uh, let me give you one. Isaiah, turn real quickly to Isaiah 61. And I'll take, I'll take just a couple of minutes here to kind of show you something. This is kind of why the, the Jewish nation gets really messed up. With their interpretation of, of who Christ was supposed to be. And I think it's also how some in the, in the world around us get real messed up in understanding the purpose for Christ and His church. Isaiah 61, yeah, you found it? Verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison of them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Stop right there. This is quoted by Christ in Luke chapter 4. Christ comes into the temple. He asks for a scroll. He gets the book of Isaiah, and he reads this portion of Scripture and almost quotes it word for word. But there's a problem. When he's quoting this, and he gets to verse 2, he reads, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and he stops. The acceptable year of the Lord was His first coming. That little comma between the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of God, right now, are 2,000 years apart. The day of God's vengeance on this world has not come yet. Because we're still here. When Christ, Messiah, comes back the second time, He'll pick up the last half of that verse. And so a lot of these Scriptures in in the Old Testament, they take the first coming and the second coming and they just kind of join them together right here in the middle and just go on with no explanation. You and I have the ability to decipher this because we've got the New Testament. You and I have the ability to understand this because we have the New Testament to understand... There are some things that Christ did when He came the first time. His first coming was important. And His setting up the church was important. The church that God set up is not immaterial. It's not a band-aid. It's not a plan B because He couldn't do what He wanted to the first time. It was His intent all along. And there's a perfect, there's more to that that's later on that we may discuss later on concerning the book of Zechariah. It'll take you about 45 minutes to read the book. It's really not that long. It's really not that long compared to Matthew. It's like three hours. Most of you will be able to read it on your way to work or at lunch. Or you could have just read it this morning while you were pretending to listen to me, you know. Uh, but what do we get here? We get this book of great encouragement to God's people. That we have to remember that in an appointed time, God who cares will remember and God will bless. So may we be faithful To follow him until he shows himself who he is amongst us. Thank you for your goodness.